Chapter Twelve of *The Innocents Abroad* by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We have come five hundred miles by rail through the heart of France. What a bewitching land it is! What a garden! Surely the leagues of bright green lawns are swept and brushed and watered every day and their grasses trimmed by the barber. Surely the hedges are shaped and measured, and their symmetry preserved by the most architectural of gardeners. Surely the long, straight rows of stately poplars that divide the beautiful landscape like the squares of a checkerboard are set with line and plummet, and their uniform height determined with a spirit level. Surely the straight, smooth, pure white turnpikes are jack-planed and sandpapered every day. How else are these marvels of symmetry, cleanliness, and order attained? It is wonderful. There are no unsightly stone walls, and never a fence of any kind. There is no dirt, no decay, no rubbish anywhere, nothing that even hints at untidiness nothing that ever suggests neglect all is orderly and beautiful everything is charming to the eye we had such glimpses of the rhone gliding along between its grassy banks of cosy cottages buried in flowers and shrubbery of quaint old red-tiled villages with mossy medieval cathedrals looming out of their midst of wooded hills with ivy-grown towers, and turrets of feudal castles projecting above the foliage. Such glimpses of paradise, it seemed to us, such visions of fabled fairyland. We knew then what the poet meant when he sang of Thy cornfields, green and sunny vines, O pleasant land of France. And it is a pleasant land, no word describes it so felicitously as that one. They say there is no word for home in the French language. Well, considering that they have the article itself in such an attractive aspect, they ought to manage to get along without the word. Let us not waste too much pity on homeless France. I have observed that Frenchmen abroad seldom wholly give up the idea of going back to France some time or other. I am not surprised at it now. We are not infatuated with these French railway cars, though. We took first-class passage, not because we wish to attract attention by doing a thing which is uncommon in Europe, but because we could make our journey quicker by doing so. It is hard to make railroading pleasant in any country. It is so tedious. Stagecoaching is infinitely more delightful. Once I crossed the plains and deserts and mountains of the West in a stagecoach from the Missouri line to California, and since then all my pleasure trips must be measured by that rare holiday frolic. Two thousand miles of ceaseless rush and rattle and clatter by night and by day, and never a weary moment, never a lapse of interest. The first seven hundred miles a level continent, its grassy carpet 
greener and softer and smoother than any sea, and figured with designs fitted to its magnitude. The shadows of the clouds. Here were no scenes but summer scenes, and no disposition inspired by them but to lie at full length on the mail sacks in the grateful breeze and dreamily smoke the pipe of peace. What other? Where all was repose and contentment. In cool mornings before the sun was fairly up, it was worth a lifetime of city toiling and moiling to perch in the foretop with the driver and see the six mustangs scamper under the sharp snapping of the whip that never touched them to scan the blue distances of a world that knew no lords but us to cleave the wind with uncovered head and feel the sluggish pulses rousing to the spirit of a speed that pretended to be resistless rush of a typhoon then thirteen hundred miles of desert solitudes of limitless panoramas of bewildering perspective of mimic cities of pinnacled cathedrals of massive fortresses counterfeited in the eternal rocks and splendid with the crimson and gold of the setting sun of dizzy altitudes among fog-wreathed peaks and never-melting snows where thunders and lightnings and tempests warred magnificently at our feet and the storm-clouds above swung their shredded banners in our very faces but i forgot i'm in elegant france now and not scurrying through the great south pass and the wind river mountains among antelopes and buffaloes and painted indians on the warpath it is not meant that i should make too disparaging comparisons between humdrum travel on a railroad and the royal summer flight across a continent in a stagecoach I meant in the beginning to say that railway journeying is tedious and tiresome, and so it is, though at the time I was thinking particularly of a dismal fifty-hour pilgrimage between New York and St. Louis. Of course, our trip through France was not really tedious, because all its scenes and experiences were new and strange, but as Dan says, it had its discrepancies. The cars are built in compartments that hold eight persons each. Each compartment is partially subdivided, and so there are two tolerably distinct parties of four in it. Four face the other four. The seats and backs are thickly padded and cushioned, and are very comfortable. You can smoke if you wish. There are no bothersome peddlers. You are saved the infliction of a multitude of disagreeable fellow-passengers. So far, so well, but then the conductor locks you in when the train starts. There's no water to drink in the car. There's no heating apparatus for night travel. If a drunken rowdy should get in, you could not remove a matter of twenty seats from him or enter another car. But above all, if you are worn out and must sleep, you must sit up and do it in naps, with cramped legs, and in a torturing misery that leaves you withered and lifeless the next day. For behold, they have not that culmination of all charity and human kindness, a sleeping car.
in all France. I prefer the American system. It has not so many grievous discrepancies. In France, all is clockwork, all is order. They make no mistakes. Every third man wears a uniform. Whether he be a marshal of the empire or a brakeman, he is ready and perfectly willing to answer all your questions with tireless politeness, ready to tell you which car to take, yea, and ready to go and put you into it to make sure that you shall not go astray. You cannot pass into the waiting room of the depot till you have secured your ticket, and you cannot pass from its only exit till the train is at its threshold to receive you. Once on board, the train will not start till your ticket has been examined, till every passenger's ticket has been inspected. This is cheaply for your own good. If by any possibility you have managed to take the wrong train, you will be handed over to a polite official who will take you hither you belong and bestow you with many an affable bow. Your ticket will be inspected every now and then along the route, and when it is time to change cars, you will know it. You are in the hands of officials who zealously study your welfare and your interest. Instead of turning their talents to the invention of new methods of discommoding and snubbing you, as is very often the main employment of that exceedingly self-satisfied monarch, the railroad conductor of America. But the happiest regulation in French railway government is thirty minutes to dinner. No five-minute boltings of flabby rolls, muddy coffee, questionable eggs, gutta-percha beef, and pies whose conception and execution are a dark and bloody mystery to all save the cook that created them. No, we sat calmly down. It was an old Dijon, which is so easy to spell and so impossible to pronounce, except when you civilize it and call it Demijon, and poured out rich Burgundian wines, and munched calmly through a long table de haute billefaire, snail patties, delicious fruits and all, then paid the trifle it cost and stepped happily aboard the train again, without once cursing the railroad company, a rare experience and one to be treasured forever. They say they do not have accidents on these French roads, and I think it must be true. If I remember rightly, we passed high above wagon roads, or through tunnels under them, but never crossed them on their own level. About every quarter of a mile, it seemed to me, a man came out and held up a club till the train went by, to signify that everything was safe ahead. Switches were changed a mile in advance by pulling a wire rope that passed along the ground by the rail, from station to station. Signals for the day and signals for the night gave constant and timely notice of the position of switches. No, they have no railroad accidents to speak of in France. But why? Because when one occurs, somebody has to hang for it. Not hang, maybe, but 
but be punished at least with some vigor of emphasis as to make negligence a thing to be shuddered at by railroad officials for many a day thereafter no blame attached to the officers that lying and disaster breeding verdict so common to our soft-hearted juries is seldom rendered in france if the trouble occurred in the conductor's department that officer must suffer if his subordinate cannot be proven guilty if in the engineer's department and the case be similar the engineer must answer the old travelers those delightful parrots who have been here before and know more about the country than louis napoleon knows now or will ever know tell us these things and we believe them because they are pleasant things to believe and because they are plausible and savor of the rigid subjection to law and order which we behold about us everywhere but we love the old travelers we we love to hear them prat and drivel and lie we can tell them the moment we see them they always throw out a few feelers they never cast themselves adrift till they have sounded every individual and know that he has not traveled then they open their throttle valves and how they do brag and sneer and swell and soar and blaspheme the sacred name of truth their central idea their grand aim is to subjugate you keep you down make you feel insignificant and humble in the blaze of their cosmopolitan glory they will not let you know anything they sneer at your most inoffensive suggestions they laugh unfeelingly at your treasured dreams of foreign lands they brand the statements of your traveled aunts and uncles as the stupidest absurdities they deride your most trusted authors and demolish the fair images that they have set up for your willing worship with the pitiless ferocity of the fanatic iconoclast but still i love the old travelers i love them for their witless platitudes for their supernatural ability to bore for their delightful asinine vanity for their luxuriant fertility of imagination for their startling their brilliant their overwhelming mendacity by lions in the sound where we saw the lady of lions and thought little of her comeliness by Villafranca, Tonnerre, Venerable Sens, Melon, Fontainebleau, and scores of other beautiful cities we swept, always noting the absence of hog-wallows, broken fences, cow-lots, unpainted houses, and mud, and always noting as well the presence of cleanliness, grace, taste in adorning and beautifying, even to the disposition of a tree, or the turning of a hedge, the marvel of roads in perfect repair, void of ruts and guiltless of even an inequality of surface. We bowled along hour after hour that brilliant summer day, and as nightfall approached we entered a wilderness of odorous flowers and shrubbery, sped through it, and then, excited, delighted, and half persuaded that we were only the sport of a beautiful dream, lo we stood in magnificent paris what excellent order they kept about that vast depot 
There was no frantic crowding and jostling, no shouting and swearing, and no swaggering intrusion of services by rowdy hackmen. These latter gentry stood outside, stood quietly by their long line of vehicles, and said never a word. A kind of hackman general seemed to have the whole matter of transportation in his hands. He politely received the passengers, and ushered them to the kind of conveyance they wanted, and told the driver where to deliver them. There was no talking back, no dissatisfaction about overcharging, no grumbling about anything. In a little while we were speeding through the streets of Paris, and delightfully recognizing certain names and places with which books had long ago made us familiar. It was like meeting an old friend when we read Rue de Rivoli on the street corner. We knew the genuine vast palace of the Louvre as well as we knew its picture. When we passed by the Column of July, we needed no one to tell us what it was or to remind us that on its site once stood the grim Bastille, that grave of human hopes and happiness, that dismal prison-house within whose dungeons so many young faces put on the wrinkles of age, so many proud spirits grew humble, so many brave hearts broke. We secured rooms at the hotel, or rather, we had three beds put into one room so that we might be together. And then we went out to a restaurant just after lamplighting and ate a comfortable, satisfactory, lingering dinner. It was a pleasure to eat where everything was so tidy, the food so well cooked, the waiters so polite, and the coming and departing of company so mustached, so frisky, so affable, so fearfully and wonderfully Frenchy. All the surroundings were gay and enlivening. Two hundred people sat at little tables on the sidewalk, sipping wine and coffee. The streets were thronged with light vehicles and with joyous pleasure-seekers. There was music in the air, life and action all about us, and a conflagration of gaslight everywhere. After dinner, we felt like seeing such Parisian specialties as we might see without distressing exertion. And so we sauntered through the brilliant streets and looked at the dainty trifles and variety stores and jewelry shops. Occasionally, merely for the pleasure of being cruel, we put unoffending Frenchmen on the rack with questions framed in the incomprehensible jargon of their native language, and while they writhed, we impaled them, we peppered them, we scarified them with their own vile verbs and participles. We noticed that in the jewelry stores they had some of the articles marked gold and some labeled imitation. We wondered at this extravagance of honesty and inquired into the matter. We were informed that inasmuch as most people are not able to tell false gold from the genuine article, the government compels jewelers to have their gold work assayed and stamped officially according to its fineness, 
and their imitation work duly labeled with a sign of its falsity. They told us the jewelers would not dare to violate this law, and that whatever a stranger bought in one of their stores might be depended upon as being strictly what it was represented to be. Verily a wonderful land is France. Then we hunted for a barber shop. From earliest infancy it had been a cherished ambition of mine to be shaved some day in a palatial barber shop in Paris. I wished to recline at full length in a cushioned invalid chair with pictures about me and sumptuous furniture with frescoed walls and gilded arches above me and vistas of Corinthian columns stretched far before me with perfumes of Araby to intoxicate my senses, and the slumbrous drone of distant noises to soothe me to sleep. At the end of an hour I would wake up regretfully and find my face as smooth and as soft as an infant's. Departing, I would lift my hands above that barber's head and say, Heaven bless you, my son. So we searched high and low for a matter of two hours, but never a barber shop could we see. We saw only wig-making establishment with shocks of dead and repulsive hair bound upon the heads of painted, waxen brigands who stared out from glass boxes upon the passer-by with their stony eyes and scared him with the ghostly white of their countenances. We shunned these signs for a time, but Finally, we concluded that the wig-makers must of necessity be the barbers as well, since we could find no single legitimate representative of the fraternity. We entered and asked, and found that this was even so. I said I wanted to be shaved. The barber inquired where my room was. I said, never mind where my room was. I wanted to be shaved. There, on the spot. The doctor said he would be shaved also. Then there was an excitement among these two barbers. There was a wild consultation, and afterwards a hurrying to and fro, and a feverish gathering up of razors from obscure places, and a ransacking for soap. Next they took us into a little mean, shabby back room. They got two ordinary sitting-room chairs and placed us in them with our coats on. My old, old dream of bliss vanished into thin air. I sat bolt upright, silent, sad, and solemn. One of the wig-making villains lathered my face for, for ten terrible minutes and finished by plastering a mass of suds into my mouth. I expelled the nasty stuff with a strong English expletive and said, Foreigner, beware! Then this outlaw strapped his razor on his boot, hovered over me ominously for six fearful seconds, and then swooped down upon me like the genius of destruction. The first rake of his razor loosened the very hide from my face and lifted me out of the chair. I stormed and raved, and the other boys enjoyed it. Their beards are not so strong and thick. Let us draw the curtain over this harrowing scene. Suffice it that I submitted and went through with the cruel infliction of a shave 
by a French barber. Tears of exquisite agony coursed down my cheeks now and then, but I survived. Then the incipient assassin held a basin of water under my chin and slopped its contents over my face and onto my bosom and then down the back of my neck with a mean pretense of washing away the soap and blood. He dried my features with a towel and was going to comb my hair, but I asked to be excused. I said with withering irony that it was sufficient to be skinned. I declined to be scalped. I went away from there with my handkerchief about my face and never, never, never desired to dream of palatial Parisian barber shops any more. The truth is, as I believe I have since found out, that they have no barber shops worthy of the name in Paris, and no barbers either, for that matter. The impostor who does duty as a barber brings his pans and napkins and implements of torture to your residence and deliberately skins you in your private apartment. Ah, I have suffered, suffered, suffered here in Paris. But never mind, the time is coming when I shall have a dark and bloody revenge. Some day a Parisian barber will come to my room to skin me, and from that day forth that barber will never be heard of more. At eleven o'clock we alighted upon a sign which manifestly referred to billiards. Joy! We had played billiards in the Azores with balls that were not round, and on an ancient table which was very little smoother than a brick pavement. One of those wretched old things with dead cushions and with patches in the faded cloth and invisible obstructions that made the balls describe the most astonishing and unsuspected angles, and perform feats in the way of unlooked-for and almost impossible scratches that were perfectly bewildering. We had played at Gibraltar with balls the size of a walnut on a table like a public square, and in both instances we achieved far more aggravation than amusement. We expected to fare better here, but we were mistaken. The cushions were a good deal higher than the balls, and the, as the balls had a fashion of always stopping under the cushions, we accomplished very little in the way of caroms. The cushions were hard and unelastic, and the cues were so crooked that in making a shot you had to allow for the curve or you would infallibly put the English on the wrong side of the ball. Dan was to mark while the doctor and I played, and at the end of an hour Neither of us had made a count, and so Dan was tired of keeping tally with nothing to tally, and we were heated and angry and disgusted. We paid the heavy bill, about six cents, and said we would call around some time when we had a week to spend and finish the game. We adjourned to uh, one of those pretty cafes and took supper and tested the wines of the country as we had been instructed to do and found them harmless and unexciting. They might have been exciting, however, if we had chosen to drink a sufficiency of them. To close our first day in Paris, cheerfully and pleasantly, 
we now sought out our grand room in the Grand Hotel de Louvre, and climbed into our sumptuous bed to read and smoke. But alas, it was a pitiful, in a whole city full of gas, we had none. Joke by the doctor. No gas to read by, nothing but dismal candles. It was a shame. We tried to map out excursions for the morrow. We puzzled over French guides to Paris. We talked disjointedly in a vain endeavor to make head or tail of the wild chaos of the day's sights and experiences. We subsided to indolent smoking. We gaped and yawned and stretched, then feebly wondered if we were really and truly in renowned Paris, and drifted drowsily away into that vast mysterious void which men call sleep. End of chapter 12 Recording by B. Scott Holmes B. Scott Holmes dot com